Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosala. Man, I hope you guys are staying safe out there. I hope you're uh, wearing your mask, staying away from people. It is heartbreaking what's going on right now. We are definitely in the second wave. I think it's safe to say. Maybe the third wave. Depends on how you analyze it. But uh, we are surging right now across the country. I've been reading these Twitter threads, and I've shared a couple of them, but they seem to be all over of different ER nurses and other healthcare workers dealing with COVID right now and just how heartbreaking these stories are of people that are coming in and literally hooked up to ventilators in some cases or just about to be, you know, vital signs dropping, clearly infected with COVID and talking about fake news and that COVID's not that bad. And I I heard one interview somewhere, uh, maybe it was on CNN, where patients would rather be diagnosed with lung cancer than with COVID right now. They're saying, are you sure it's not lung cancer? It can't be COVID. It's fake news. COVID's not real. So I'm I'm getting nervous, and uh, some of this disinformation plays directly into the show today. It's amazing kind of how timely this worked out. Matt Turnauer is my guest today. Matt's a documentary filmmaker. His new film is a four-part series looking at the Reagans. It's called The Reagans. It's airing on Showtime right now. The first episode went up last week, November 15th, and uh, there's three more parts to continue airing. You can watch those on Showtime or stream them on the Showtime app. I've had a chance to see all four parts, and we talk about them today. It's a documentary series about Ronald Reagan from his early days in Hollywood right up through the end of his second term. But as Matt will tell you, it is also a tale about where we are right now, 40 years later, and the Trump era, and what that all means for us. You know, Reagan was kind of famous for a lot of disinformation, too, or a lot of denialism. And he very famously denied the AIDS crisis was happening and didn't act soon enough to get resources to the people that needed them. A lot of people died because of AIDS on Ronald Reagan's watch. And we're in a very similar place with COVID right now. So there's a lot of lessons that can be taken from this film. I went into it in part just really interested in the content the Reagan era, I was born during it, so I don't have a great sense of it. I certainly have never looked critically at it, never studied it. And Matt has done that homework for me and lays it out, talks to a lot of the people that work directly with Reagan, talks to his son, Ronald Reagan Jr. There's a lot of really great interviews in it. What I didn't know until we started talking is how much of it had been done remotely under strict COVID protocols. A lot of this film hadn't even been shot when the shutdown happened in March and Matt and his team had to scramble and figure out how to make a four part documentary series almost completely remotely. So we talk a lot about that filmmaking process as well. You might be familiar with some of Matt's other work. Last year, he made the documentary, where's my Roy Cohen. Prior to that, he'd made studio 54 as well as Valentino, the last emperor. And prior to that, he was a writer and reporter working under Greg and Carter, first at Spy Magazine, later at Vanity Fair. So really interesting background, really thoughtful filmmaker, and a really fun conversation. So here it is, my interview with Matt Turnauer. 
Well, I want to start by just asking sort of the general question, how this quarantine period has been for you these last, whatever it is, seven, eight months now? Well, you know, uh, like a lot of people who have been able to work at home, uh, it's been okay in comparison to so many other people who just aren't able to do their work at home. Right. In comparison, it's been okay. Uh, Obviously, it's completely surreal. And uh, I think everyone has forms of PTSD that we just don't understand and haven't really experienced before. So that needs to get sorted out. But you see the world in a different way, which is, uh, I'm sure, something that we can talk about at greater length. And uh, there is a certain, um, I don't know, being a hermit by uh, force majeure is uh, interesting because you do notice things you've never noticed before. I think one thing I I don't think this is unique to me. I've heard uh, at least one other person say it is that you see uh, the way your house is lit uh, at different times of day. And Mm. it's actually quite revelatory. I I don't know whether that's come up for you or not, but I, you know, I really wasn't home that much during the day. And I'm just sometimes just astonished at where the light is in the house and what it looks like and the tree in the backyard and all of that. So there've been uh, ups and downs. Yeah. It's funny. I'm in the Boston area and we had this kind of freakish snowstorm like right around Halloween where it dumped, I don't know, four inches or something on us. But a lot of the fall leaves were still on the trees. And I was at the kitchen sink just doing dishes and looking out at kind of the sunset on the snow. And I was like, something's not right. Like what's, what's going on there? And I realized there was a shadow being cast from the leaves that were still on the trees that normally when we have snow, the leaves would be down and it just something wasn't computing in my head. I'm like, what is the, you know, why is there a shadow where there shouldn't be one? So it's it's interesting, those things that we notice for sure. Yeah, things like that, I think, are important. You know, I'm someone that was in airports a couple times a month minimum and not home because of that. And you get into that routine and I'm in Los Angeles. So you have then your freeway commutes to the airport or your office commutes. And to suddenly be more uh, focused on where the sun's setting and uh, what the leaves look like, as you've just mentioned, or what I'm in hills, what the, what the mountain looks like. Uh, this is a way people look at the world pre-industrial, really. Sure. And to be forced into that headspace is unique in our time. And I've certainly appreciated that. But again, this all goes with the idea that not much changed for me work-wise, uh, except that I had to do it all at home in isolation. But we kept on working, which is really what kept me sane through this. The one day I had off, and my office had off was Labor Day, and I did not know what to do with myself. Yeah. I was completely <laughs> at odds and miserable that entire supposed holiday. Oh, that's funny. Are you, are you someone that usually goes away for that holiday? Would that have been like a vacation somewhere? No, I, you know, I'm completely irregular about patterns like that. So I don't associate Labor Day with going away at all. But I think that I've had a schedule to adhere to. And the minute that that schedule dropped away, and there were no alternatives, such as going out to dinner, for instance, which right. is something I do frequently in normal times. Uh, that wasn't an option. And uh, whatever, you know, taking a day trip, et cetera, just not something that's on my agenda. I, I really didn't know what to do with myself. And the, that was profound. That was quite profound. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned the PTSD piece of it, too. And like, I, I'm really curious to see in the next like two or three years, I guess, you know, hopefully we're on the other side of it by then, but sort of like, what are the things that 
stick with us. And, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about sort of my grandparents' generation that, you know, went through the Great Depression and World War II and all that. And they just sort of never talked about those experiences again. And I almost feel like it's going to be that with this, that like, once we're on the other side of it, nobody's going to want to remember it. <laughs> no one's going to want to talk yeah. about it. It'll just be like, yeah, can we get back to normal as quick as possible? I agree with that on many levels. And uh, however, when you have a year that's been cut out and then there's been a splice, that has a certain effect. Yeah. And I don't think we all know what that's going to be. So, you know, certain people look back in different ways. I have a very good recall overall, but I never remember exactly what year things happen. That's just mm. something I my, my memory doesn't work that way. It works in, in many other ways. It's very strong in many other ways, but it's very weak in that way. So I'm wondering what will happen when there's sort of like a, a forgotten year and right. what, what that will do to it. I would add, I, I'm very interested in what you just mentioned because uh, – so my grandfather, my oldest grandparent, I think, was born at or in around like 1904. My father was his uh, last child, so he was a little older than um, most of my peers' grandparents, and he was very much a kind of depression uh, affected person. They did not talk about the depression uh, specifically, but could tell, and even now in hindsight. It's even more clear they were very, very damaged by it. Right. And the way that their behavior manifested was absolutely related to uh, the Great Depression. I made a movie about uh, a character named Scotty Bowers, who was known as the, the pimp to the stars. It's called Scotty in the Secret History of Hollywood. And he was uh, born in 1923 and was a, a young man in the Great Depression and then had bore the brunt in combat in World War II. And anyway, I spent a lot of time with someone who was very, very affected in terms of PTSD from both the Depression and the Second World War. And uh, this is someone who just never recovered from that, and it dictated his entire existence. So, you know, I think especially you think about young people too and kids things that happen when you're really little you carry them with you whether you know it or not for the rest of your lives so this is uh definitely something that we'll be looking back on yeah it's interesting my youngest is four and he gets really freaked out by like people especially if he notices someone not wearing a mask he doesn't understand distance yet so even if they're like 25 feet away and we're like he's nowhere near you like you're fine he gets very nervous about that. So I have a feeling like just socially, it's going to take a lot for him to get to a place of, of trusting people again. Like I could imagine that having a lasting effect on him. Sure. I mean, in terms of uh, media as well, I'm a filmmaker and, you know, I understand that movies aren't reality more than most people do probably. Right. And when I see people going to parties or, you know, greeting each other with hugs, I, I can't start to panic. Right. That's a very strange effect of this. Yeah, no, totally. Well, I want to ask you, too, you were talking about uh, being able to sort of work through this whole time. Um, I, I just finished watching the four-part uh, Reagan uh, series that you did for Showtime. Was that, like, where were you in the production process on that? Had that sort of wrapped pre-COVID, or were, were you working on, like, edits and stuff all through the pandemic? No, not at all. It hadn't wrapped remotely and i think it's uh will stand probably as a case study of how to manage a bombshell uh, that landed right in the middle of our production schedules we had i don't know less than 50 percent of our interviews done wow. suddenly all of the archival houses and institutions shut down 
because this is a documentary that is based on interviews and archival. Yeah. Uh, luckily, it's not a cinema verite piece uh, like most of the things I do. So that was a blessing. But we had to scramble to figure out how to do interviews remotely and make it look like we were not um, in different cities because the whole aesthetic of the film was kind of me sitting in front of the the interviewee though i'm not on camera right you know the eye line and all of those things are of the highest importance when you're doing things like this so we had to retool entirely halfway through and um, i'm happy to say thanks to the efforts of the team and my producing partner and our um, office producing team we were able to do it wow I, I had no idea, like in watching the film, I just assumed all the interviews had taken place, you know, a year or two ago. And like, if anything, maybe you guys were in post at this point, but that's wild. Like what that remote interview setup, what did that actually entail? What did that look like? Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear you say that because we were very concerned. And uh, so far, it's, people can't tell the difference. So in terms of the big picture about uh, production, after this period is over. I think a lot of things can change. I would fly to almost every interview. If I were doing the interview, I never even contemplated right. being in a different place. And now that is um, a big possibility. So what we did at first was panic, of course, and then <laughs> got pretty constructive pretty quickly uh, and talked to the tech people we work with, and we developed all sorts of contraptions that we could basically ship and then could be set up. And then the subject of the interview could sit there and kind of watch the birdie, as it were, which would be me. Yeah. Eventually, we modified it and it got pared down. So I became a presence virtually through a monitor, and then we had to do a lot of steps to make sure the scene looked like I wanted it to. So basically you're directing over text in terms of the, the scene and the lighting and all of that. It is possible to do. It's not ideal. Yeah. But if you didn't notice, then I think it worked pretty well. But really most of this was done that way. And wow. I think that we're among the first productions to finish I, I think we have to be because our delivery date was very soon and we made that date. Yeah, that's awesome. So were, did you have a DP like on site with the interview yes. subject? And then you were, okay, <laughs> you were talking about tweaking lights and stuff. I'm like, wait, was the subject doing all that? Like that seems, that seems pretty impossible. Yeah, actually the re the way I put it was because at first we thought that might've been necessary. Uh -huh. So we created a rig that had, self-contained lights and it, the concept was that you could send a box to someone and they could open it and even if they'd never operated a camera before it could work wow so it would be dock dock in a box basically yeah, right. uh, or crew <laughs> in a box so this would have been several months into the pandemic and people started to get a little more comfortable with having people in masks around them. I think the game changer for this was the information and the studies on masking and people feeling relatively secure about that and also being outside. I hate shooting interviews outside and we were forced, but again, a lot of people who have seen the finished product say it doesn't really seem jarring. The whole 
creative concept of this was that people would be in grand rooms and the rooms would be lit a certain way to evoke a certain feeling. And all of that was very carefully planned out. So we had to switch footing and it doesn't seem to disrupt the look of the, the project. Eventually, once we could send a camera crew that was local, so people didn't have to get on airplanes, they could do the lighting and uh, things got a little more normal, but I did the whole thing from my living room. That's crazy to me. And just like, you know, talking about local crews and stuff too, like I, I, I'm always apprehensive about that. I, I was a producer and director for about 15 years as well. And just like you, I had the same urge to just always want to be on a plane, always have my crew with me. If it wasn't my crew, then I'd want to have, I'd want to be there to at least supervise if it was a local crew. Like I just, I can't imagine just handing all that over, especially for something kind of so high profile as this and so high stakes as this like was that a learning curve for you to have other other dps and camera people and stuff on this project yeah well you always like to work with the people that you have worked with before which i think is one of the keys to success in showbiz as it were i learned that pretty quickly people work with the same people for a reason right and when you deviate from that it just ups the risk a lot and that doesn't say it's not going to come out wonderfully it could but you want to minimize risk. So when you have a local crew involved, it, it ups the stress level. I think that was the biggest difference here is that where to put the camera and how to get the eye line for an interview situation like this is a big deal. And if you don't have someone that knows exactly what you want, then telling them what to do over a phone and over Zoom and over text. And you've got the subject of the interview there, which is the big unexpected variable. So how that person's time is going, how they're feeling that day, whether they're comfortable with people around them, uh, it could throw the whole thing off. So it definitely threw monkey wrenches in, nothing that was not unsurvivable at all. One thing that I am a believer in is that sometimes can overmanage and over control on a shoot and their diminishing returns. So sometimes when you leave things a little bit to chance and don't do the extra tweak and don't have to calm, you know, whomever's shooting or gaffing down about it not being the way they want it, 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 it kind of works out just fine. So mm. there's a certain advantage to some laissez-faire sometimes. Yeah. Uh, of course, the bottom can drop out and everything can completely fall apart. And then, you know, you wish you, you were, you know, in that fetishy zone of right. hyper-perfection. Exactly. But yeah. Well, and I'm sure, too, you're you're probably not just looking through the yellow pages and finding, you know, the first guy with a camera. It's It's coming through recommendations and friends of friends and that sort of thing, right? Yes, well, we were actually able to use local crews, uh, and I think in probably 80% of the cases whom we knew, yep. and uh, we had at least some experience with them. So it wasn't like we were completely rolling the dice, yep. and that made a world of difference. I really have to credit all of the people on these crews who, you know, a lot was not known at the time we were doing it. The whole mask and social distance and indoor versus outdoor messaging was so muddled right. in the early months of this that you really didn't know what you could believe uh, because they kept changing the information. And I really have to credit the bravery of these crews, and but also the willingness of the subjects, a lot of them not spring chickens, right. uh, to do this. So among them was Dr. Fauci 
Uh, oh, and you that, recorded that during the, geez, I figured that had to have been like years ago. No. Wow. No, well, to set, set this up for your listeners, uh, part of the story involves Dr. Fauci because uh, the movie's about the Reagans and Ronald Reagan famously blew the HIV AIDS pandemic. And yeah. Dr. Fauci, unbelievably, was the in the same job. Then. Yeah. It was his first, I think his first couple of years in the job at the National Institutes of Health. And he was the one in charge of the federal response in, in many ways to the HIV AIDS pandemic. He was deeply involved and he had to explain it to Reagan and Reagan just to pay any attention. Sound familiar? Right. Uh, so we, I very much wanted to interview him and I did not think that I would get him. I, he was so busy at that time. It was before he had really been cut loose, sadly, by Trump. And he did agree to sit for this interview. So he invited us to his house and we, interviewed him on his back porch. He arrived in a mask and took the mask off. Our crew, of course, kept their masks on. And he was very uh, casual uh, and relaxed about it, let me say. Yeah. And that made me feel a lot better. And of course, then I had him captive for a while. So I got to ask him all of my neurotic uh, COVID-19 <laughs> questions, which I, I felt very privileged. Yeah, that's a, that's a good direct line to have uh, during this time. Well, I I want to dive, you know, we talked a little bit just there about the subject matter of the film. Like I was really, uh, I wasn't sure, I guess, what to expect going into it. And I was surprised with sort of the parallels to the moment that we're in right now. I, I wonder, just sort of backing up for a minute, like the, your previous film to this was looking at Roy Cohn, who was uh, Donald Trump's personal lawyer and uh, had worked with Senator McCarthy during the, the Red Scare and, you know, all this. And you've done a, a film on Studio 54, like Reagan... I don't know that I would have predicted that as your next move. What drew you to this subject matter and kind of first made you want to dive into this? Well, there are a lot of connections, actually, but I'm glad that they're not so apparent uh, because I I like to be a little unpredictable Uh and uh, I'm driven by in my creativity and the movies that I've set out to make. I'm driven by personal interest overall. So uh, this is a part of my uh, interests, politics that period of politics. I think that everybody who has a platform now is absolutely obligated to uh, engage in politics and make movies or write books or create podcasts or whatever you do that uh, addresses the urgent moment of crisis that we're facing in this republic. So I think that the turning point of how we got to now in the era we know as the the Trump era or uh, the politics we know is Trumpism, although I think he's more symptomatic than anything, uh, really were the 1980s, uh, the late 70s, and then specifically 80 when Reagan won the election. And uh, I thought this was where to look and to have uh, four parts to uh, explore Reagan, Reaganism, the 80s, and what happened in this country in the 20th century, really, that led to an entertainer, a movie star becoming president at the end of the 20th century, I think is the precursor to a reality TV star and kind of someone with a a bizarre flair for Twitter and social media becoming president 20 years into the 20th century. Uh, There actually are a lot of political themes in the films I do, although they're not always overt. There's a movie I made called Citizen Jane, which is about really urban planning and cities, but that's about the uh, political struggles that happened in the United States in the 20th century. 
Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood, which I mentioned before, which is ostensibly about a pimp in Hollywood, uh, really has a lot of uh, political themes in it uh, as it relates to Hollywood and sex and sexuality and identity in the 20th century and also image and the way that Hollywood has shaped uh, everyone's point of view and uh, censorship and uh, the thing, the lies we tell ourselves about who we are and where we live and what we do. Right. Uh, Studio 54 uh, really is about the HIV AIDS crisis ultimately. And then from that uh, came a movie, Where's My Roy Cohn, which is very much about Trump, even though Trump only comes into it in the third act because Roy Cohn was Trump's creator. Yeah. And that's a movie about the period that stretches from the McCarthy era, which Roy Cohn was a big part of, into Trump. And Trump and McCarthyism uh, are uh, inextricably linked, and Roy Cohn's the connector to that. So Reagan also is a figure of the McCarthy period who uh, really hit his greatest period of influence uh, decades after that. So there's a, there's a bit of a theme there. Uh, and uh, I believe that this four-part series is a parable uh, Donald Trump's never mentioned, but I would argue that almost every minute of it is about Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I definitely. I mean, there, there's just so much, you know, as I was watching it that I kind of wrote down, you know, a, a Democrat for most of his life that turned Republican. Um, partially, you could argue, I guess, out of ideology, but partially it seems out of opportunism, uh, the reliance on law and order as kind of a talking point and a, a show of strength. Uh, putting business-friendly people in cabinet positions, even overseeing apartments that, or departments that, you know, they oppose. Uh, we talked about Dr. Fauci and the AIDS crisis and um, the racism piece too. I, you know, I, I was I was born during the Reagan era, so like my, I don't have strong memories of it, but sort of just realizing how kind of blatantly racist he was and seeing those parallels to today, like I was that that stood out to me in a way that that was unexpected, I guess, because I don't feel like that part of his history is is covered as much and maybe wouldn't have been if not for trump yes well gore vidal called this the united states of amnesia yeah and that just keeps proving itself and that's really why i wanted to make this uh reagan's record on race and the way he used race to demagogue and to create uh, atmosphere of uh, grievance politics and, and build on that. It, it's always been there since the creation of the, of the nation. Uh, but Reagan was uh, a big practitioner of this. And the way that he built a coalition in the Republican Party that depended on upon racial grievance to win elections is the story of our time. And he is not tagged with that reputation for many reasons, Uh, but he's very guilty of it. And St. Reagan is a narrative that's instilled in a lot of us. It's one that's repeated often, and it's I don't believe that it's the case. I think he's a relatively complicated figure. There are aspects of him that I explore that are somewhat less negative than that. But that, I would say... uh, is one of the most negative, if not the most negative uh, aspect of Reagan and his record. Yeah. I'm really curious, too, that that St. Reagan thing and sort of I I feel like even now young conservatives are sort of brought up with this reverence for him. And, you know, as you say, he sort of started the political moment that we're now inheriting, you know, 40 years later. But 
I wonder just how much a story like his really serves as like a Rorschach test that like I'm watching this just kind of shaking my head in disgust. But you interview a lot of people that were very close to him, you know, in his cabinet and political advisors and speechwriters. Like when they agree to do an interview with you, do they know sort of the way that you're going to take it? Or I guess am I am I interpreting that? through my own lens and when they watch your film they say yeah what a hero like i I, it's just so interesting to me i guess sort of the different lenses that we can all view view him through yeah i'm not sure what their response will be you know i don't harangue a lot in my films i i kind of put the information out there and try to have multiple perspectives i don't really get prescriptive that much yeah so in a way there's a lot of subtext i certainly have a point of view um, but i i kind of hold my cards relatively close to my chest i mean if you look at documentaries by say a, a you know a hyper partisan like oliver stone yeah. who's a great filmmaker and interested in american history but his documentaries tend to harangue a bit michael moore sure uh, also you know there's no greater success than michael moore and he's done so much for progressivism uh, but he you know he his shtick is harangue a, a little bit and i don't do that i like to put it out there and you can kind of take what you want i see this four-part on Reagan or the Reagans is what the title is because they're both involved uh, as a a parable uh, for our times and a lot of necessary history that's been deleted and uh, that part of that's because of the United States of amnesia effect but also we hide the uglier parts of our history routinely and this is due to a series of syndromes and maladies and and uh, kind of systems that are built into the culture but we need correctives and i I consider this to be one one of the people that's most clear-eyed about ronald and nancy reagan is ronald reagan jr right who uh i don't know whether he went through psychoanalysis but uh, he seemed to me to have because his perspective on his parents is so evolved Uh, i think he had to have done a lot of really hard and good thinking about his father and his mother and what they meant and what they mean now and who they were to him. It it was a really remarkable interview. Yeah. He was, he was able to speak with almost an objectivity and a, uh, I don't know, a detachment that was remarkable for somebody that, you know, he's talking about his parents and, you know, grew up in that family and, and surrounded by those politics to be able to look at it so critically, um, he, he was really kind of the standout guest to me in that film, or, you know, the, the series of, of films, because, yeah, he's, he's just so honest about all of it. And you're like, how how can you not feel the need to protect that legacy? And, and you know, he, he I guess he's the most sort of out front about his criticisms, which I appreciated. I did, too. I mean, what does that tell you also? I mean, I talked to a lot of partisans, a lot of people were at the top of their category in the Reagan administration. And in that period, I mean, some of them were the greatest and most esteemed people uh, of their generation in government. And they are not publicly fessing up. Uh, They are really determined, uh, more than with most political figures, I've found, to keep conveying a myth of Reagan. Because the entire modern Republican movement before Trump is built on uh, the foundation of Reagan, because he was successful. 
and he was the vessel for a lot of people who had very conservative beliefs and uh, a certain philosophy about economics, which, uh, just to cut to the chase, created what we call the 1% in our country. Yep. And Reagan's representation of supply-side economics, which was something that uh, conservatives and mostly Republicans had been trying to implement since the New Deal, this was their goal, was right. to change uh, New Deal social and economic policy, and Reagan was the front man for all of that. So uh, until Trump, the unified nature of conservatism and republicanism in this country uh, was unbelievable. But of course, you know, actually, uh, Gore Vidal, who I think was a great thinker on all of this and was a friend of mine, and I edited some of his work, he, he always said, you know, Republicans have a huge advantage because they really tend toward authoritarianism. And authoritarians have a unified theory. They don't diverge, yeah. whereas liberals are, by definition, divergent in their thinking. So it's very hard to get liberals to be you know, progressives, what we call them today, to be unified. It's like herding cats. Right. So this allowed conservatism and, and Reaganism to stay on a pretty straight and narrow track for decades. And uh, Trump brought it to a place that I think it was trying to go in many ways. And he broke the dam because I, I do think there are the seeds of authoritarianism in Reaganism. Yeah. I mean, if some of them are quite, some of it's quite explicit. Gene Kirkpatrick, who was also a former Democrat, curiously, who was uh, Reagan's UN ambassador, wrote a foundational essay about the glories of authoritarian governments mm. uh, because they could be perhaps influenced to become less authoritarian. And uh, what you really had to watch out for were totalitarian governments, which were in that period, the Soviet Union and yeah. uh, what was called Red China. Uh, but they were all for authoritarianism and they were into people like Pinochet. That's a bit of a problem uh, when you really dig down deep into it. But this was not something that was covert. Reagan loved her theory about that. And there are authoritarian aspects to Reaganism. Yeah, it's interesting, too, talking about sort of Trump uh, not fully breaking that mold, I guess, because there are, there is so much that he's really taking uh, from from Reaganism. But I wonder, like, taking all the lessons you have from this film and now looking ahead, you know, knowing that, that Joe Biden's going to be president and we don't yet know, I guess, where the Senate's headed, but there will at least be a Democratic control of, of the House of Representatives. What do you imagine? I, I guess I, I I was surprised in 2016 to see Trump rise after 2012, where it felt like the Republican Party got very introspective and said, you know what, we've got to expand our base and we need to be speaking to more people and become more diverse. And then obviously they went in a completely different direction four years later. And, you know, we have Trumpism. But like thinking about what the next chapter of Republicanism looks like, does that Reagan mold still hold in 2022 or 2024? Or do you imagine some sort of evolution or change? Uh, I think it's over. And I think the urgent thing that we need to tackle right now is in this very short reprieve of three, three and a half years of a Biden administration, and then we're in fully into a presidential election cycle again, how to really stamp out 
authoritarianism in this country. And uh, this is the project. One thing that really got to me for years during the early decades of the 21st century is that most mainstream Republicans engaged in open Ronald Reagan worship. That was their branding and their calling card. You know, Joe Scarborough on Morning Joe, Ronald Reagan, my hero in politics. I don't really understand how they were allowed to get away with that. So you mean that someone who practiced dog whistle politics and clearly had racist tendencies, and if he didn't personally, he enacted policies that were absolutely detrimental to civil rights progress in this country. Someone who destroyed, did much to destroy the social safety net and progressive politics of the New Deal and create uh, the climate that led to the 1%. All these things that uh, Joe Scarborough now would probably uh, say are negative forces. Why were they allowed to use the Reagan brand and why did that work so well? And no one's really been held to account for that. All of the never Trumpers, with the possible exception of someone like Stuart Stevens, who's wrote a book. He was a big GOP consultant, yeah. wrote a book called It Was All a Lie. Yeah. And he's with Project Lincoln now and kind of going against the GOP. Yeah. Well, a lot of those Lincoln Project, Lincoln Project Republicans are Reagan babies. Yeah. And they've never really denounced or renounced the dog whistle racist legacy of Reaganism. And this is unfinished business as far as I'm concerned. I I think they need to be uh, held to account for this. They need to answer for why they were allowed with impunity to practice that kind of demagoguery and uh, politics and uh, get away with it. And and not just get away with it, just like gloat about being Reagan Republicans. Yeah. When Reagan Republicanism stands for, in many ways, dog whistle, uh, racism, and other types of demagoguery that leverages grievance politics, and and also something we haven't talked about, uh, the the Christian right coalitions, which is you can approach that subject with some more objectivity, but still that as Ronald Reagan Jr. calls it in, in my film, unholy alliance is the product of Reaganism. And there's a lot of hypocrisy embedded in that sure. as well. And that Republican Party, a lot of it, you know, they're bright, they're very bright, and they're really sophisticated communicators who have become never-Trumpers, and some of them really admirable Lincoln Project producers of super effective ads. And uh, like, I give them a great deal of credit for, for what they've done, but that's a piece of it that is sort of hanging out there. Yeah. The the last piece I want to ask you about is just sort of this idea, you know, I feel like it kind of wraps up everything we've been talking about of, you know, part of the reason I feel like Ronald Reagan's legacy was sort of so cemented as as heroic was because of how he actively branded himself and sort of embodied these roles that he had played in Hollywood as if they were real life. You know, he really imagined himself as the the small town sheriff with the six shooter or, you know, the the hero, uh, you know, Navy pilot or whatever in, in World War Two. Like none of those things were really real. They were shot on a backlot with, you know, stunt people and whatever. But for whatever reason, 
he decided to make that persona who he is. And and I guess Trump did that too with The Apprentice, right? That, you know, he's the successful businessman. And all of a sudden, because of that one show, people forget sort of the clown show that was the 90s and all his bankruptcies and failed casinos, <laughs> failed airlines. But because you put him in prime time and light him well and have him sit at a board table and say, you're fired. It's like, oh yeah, that guy, he's, you know, he's a good businessman. Like that, that's so interesting to me, I guess, of just the, the branding of both these presidents and and how people respond to that branding more than any of the actual substance. Yes, I mean, there's a great book called Life, the Movie, written by Neil Gabler, where he tackles this. I think it was written more than 10 years ago at this point. And the 20th century, and now even to a hyper degree, the 21st, in the era of digital media and social media, fiction and reality are absolutely blurred for most people. And Reagan was a pioneer in that. So he's a movie star uh, from the 30s and 40s and became, of course, he was also a radio star and a TV star. He had kind of all media of the 20th century under his belt. And that expertise allowed him to play the president. And he was performing. He admits it in certain unguarded interviews, you can see him in the film doing that and people ate it up. So this is very much the direct precursor to Trump. People need to see that and understand that. And the media uh, ate it up more than anyone because the media industrial complex had been waiting for a televised presidency and someone who who got it, who would in effect play with them for years, for decades. Uh, now, there's a moment right at the beginning that it's not commented upon, but I put it right at the beginning for a reason, which is you see Reagan pretending to drive a car in a 1930s movie where he's playing a role. And then there's a jump cut between that where Reagan is driving a Jeep with Barbara Walters in the passenger seat uh, on his ranch in the 1980s as president. But he's dressed as basically John Wayne. He has a cowboy hat and she's sort of dressed in a uh, TV news person ranch outfit. And, you know, it's a perfect jump cut or almost it's really a match cut between these two scenarios and in both he's playing a role and she's using it and exploiting it and abc news is using it exploiting it for ratings and for glory and to give the people what they want which was the cover that was used to uh, perpetuate all of this now you're a filmmaker you realize this you're sort of floating in front of the windshield of this Jeep that he's driving. And they have this clever banter. That's very much like the clever banter that Reagan's having with the passenger in the car in the thirties movie. But you know, as well as I do that a crew spent five hours strapping a camera to the hood of that Jeep and lights. And there's a whole rig there and they're filming a movie. And yet you really forget that when you're watching this. So, That was the way that he got to where uh, he got, but he was on a mission that was much bigger than just hoodwinking uh, the American people and proving that a failed movie star could actually ascend to the highest office in the land and have the nuclear codes at his disposal. He was there really for an economic swindle that was the product of a group of right-wing businessmen and uh, 
think tanks that these same right wing businessmen had funded who were determined to undo the social compact of the New Deal and redistribute uh, American wealth upward into the hands of the one percent and reagan was the uh the vessel for that and that was the real motive for taking a movie star who had gotten into politics uh with great success uh in the 1960s and catapulting him into the oval office and that's really the story i'm telling here and Trumpism is very related to that. I mean, the tax program of Donald Trump was um, kind of like a Reagan redux. And this is why a lot of the plutocrats in this country, even if they find Trump to be uh, ridiculous, uh, to say the least, uh, vote for him. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you uh, brought up in the film, I think, relative to his governor campaign, uh, uh, Reagan's governor campaign, but Mr. Smith goes to Washington. And there's, there's quite a parallel uh, between that movie and uh, what you just described, both with Reagan and with Trump. Again, the thing about Reagan and Trump that really connects them is magical thinking. Yep. They both are people that were absolutely divorced from reality and lived in their own worlds certainly with Reagan. And I think the jury's still out on Trump. I'm not sure we fully understand what creates and motivates his evil genius. But magical thinking is present in uh, both politicians' careers. And Reagan, as a movie performer and a product of Hollywood, combined a personal propensity for magical thinking that comes from his upbringing and the fact that his mother was a faith healer and he comes from a part of the country that was in the throes of the revivalist tent religion movement and he had all these these aspects to him it's very superstitious something we have to talk about is uh, astrology and yeah. his belief in it and his wife's belief in it and how it guided them to a much 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 greater extent than was ever admitted or fully understood at the time and this kind of magical thinking that's unmoored from reality and science is uh, indicative to them and endemic to, uh, I guess we know, now 70 million uh, American voters who are, are willing to go along with that. It's very dangerous. It's a, something that's ingrained in the American psyche. And Reagan tapped into that brilliantly. And then Trump, it turns out, knows how to tap into that. So the myths upon which that magical thinking are based come from several places, uh, many places. I mean, certainly the Bible uh, is one of them, but Hollywood films are probably even more prevalent. And at yeah. the time, Frank Capra, one of the great American mythologists, and he, his most famous movie, well, second most famous movie probably after It's a Wonderful Life, is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where Jimmy Stewart, who was a, a much bigger movie star than Ronald Reagan, had the parts that Reagan would have loved to have played but yeah. never got, uh, portrays a citizen politician who goes to set the corrupt, uh, degenerate, permanent, what we call it now, deep state in Washington, uh, right, and he succeeds. And Reagan really based his early political career career on Mr. Smith and even branded himself at first as a citizen politician, which people have forgotten. No one associates that label with Reagan anymore, but that's where it comes from. And Trump, in his perverted, 
fascist political show is doing much the same thing. He's tapping into a strain of uh, perverted populism and demagoguing it. Yeah. Well, it's incredible to me just sort of how how much we've been able to talk about this and how little we've skimmed the surface. <laughs> like, I'm, I was just so impressed with the, you know, the four-part series because it really, it takes a deep dive into a lot of these issues and, yeah, draws the parallels between what happened 40 years ago and, and the moment we're in right now. So, um, yeah, I, I wish we had more time because there's a million other things we could talk about, but we could literally be talking for, you know, seven hours and probably still not scratch the surface. So um, people should check out the films. They're awesome. And there's a, there's a lot in there that's really relevant to today. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. All right, there we go. Matt Turnauer. Make sure you check out The Reagans playing on Showtime Sunday nights. And uh, yeah, it's a lot there, a lot to dig into. I'm going to post some links to some of the things that Matt called out in the newsletter. I've mentioned it before, but I now do a newsletter that goes out every Sunday. So if you want to have that in your inbox, go to heathrasella.com, enter your email there, and you will get that delivered right to your inbox. I will link to uh, the trailer of the film. Uh, some of the books that he called out for additional reading, and some other cool stuff. Before we go, I've got to tell you about next week's show. Coming next Monday, I have got one of the coolest interviews. I still can't believe I got to talk to this guy. Glenn Keane is going to be my guest. He is an animator. He worked at Disney for like 30-plus years. He worked on The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, uh, Aladdin, all these great films. He later went on to animate and direct the Kobe Bryant short Dear Basketball that won an Oscar about two years ago. And he is now the director of his first feature, his first animated feature, Over the Moon, which is streaming on Netflix. So we talked a lot about his creative process, about Over the Moon, of course, and about his time at Disney. It is a really fascinating conversation. And he is somebody that overlapped with a lot of the animators that had worked directly under Walt Disney. And they were his mentors. So he has some amazing stories just about that era, as well as just everything else in his life. So come back next Monday for that show with Glenn Keane. It's going to be a good one. Hit subscribe. Make sure you're one of the first ones to have my new shows in your feed. They come out every Monday and Thursday. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. So drop me some messages there. I will talk to you guys on Monday. Stay safe. Wear your mask.